Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who, are, who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 是没受割礼的因为他自己是我们的和平并且来传和平的福音靠着他整座房子连接得以紧凑，渐渐成为在主里的圣殿。你们也靠他同被建造，成为神借着圣灵居住的所在。It's hard, isn't it, to be on the outside? 
the young child in the school playground left out of the games of his classmates, maybe because he's too small or too slow or just because it's his turn to be left outside. Or maybe finding that your friends have organized a party and you haven't been invited. Maybe because you're not quite the right fit. You won't do or say the right things. It's hard there, isn't it? Looking in from the outside. It can be a cold and a lonely place. Crushing. And not one of us will have lived our lives, however short, however long, and not had that horrible sinking feeling when we find ourselves on the outside. And it hurts because we're not made to thrive like that. We're not solitary creatures. Yeah, some of us are wired to be more social than others. Some of us are more or less inclined to the company of others, but at our deepest levels, we thrive when we're on the inside, when we're in relationships. And yet not one of us will have lived our lives without experiencing this cruel feeling. Maybe we still are experiencing that. Because so many of us are so good at making outsiders of others. As a human race, we do it so well. In fact, it's one thing that we really excel at. We make garden fences to stop others looking in to our patch of grass. We use social media in ways which make people feel left out, inadequate. In an instant, we can defriend or make a group in which we choose who to leave in and who to leave out. And in the past few years, we've become familiar with that refrain, build that wall. A political slogan which helped to elect a president. A slogan which was not merely about the construction of a physical border, but the expression of an idea. An idea which says, we don't want you here. We don't want you in our game. You're too slow. You don't fit in. You don't talk right. You don't look right. And even though we often try to take down walls, to come together, even though there is in us a desire for unity, for inclusion, for relationships across borders, we find it so hard to achieve. Whatever you may feel about Brexit, how you voted, we may all at least agree that in some measure, on some level, the European Union was, is, an attempt to bring nations together, to form a form of unity. Whether or not this was achieved, I'll leave up to you to decide. But we have these traces, don't we? We have these, this instinct to, to find unity in our differences. But in spite of that, our histories are a disgraceful reminder of how the stronger instinct to distinguish ourselves works its way out. When we allow ourselves to let those potent instincts to keep others out, 
to make ourselves the judge of what is good and right and acceptable, how we speak, how we dress, how we eat, where we come from, the way we do things. Now, these things are played out every day in the playground, but unchecked, given free reign, they lead to the obscenities of genocide. Rwanda, the killing fields of Cambodia, Auschwitz. We all know these names, or we should. We all know these names as shorthand for the worst that humans can do to each other when we make ourselves and our ethnic or cultural or ideological identity the judge of others. Wherever human history is told, it tells of those who make walls and of those who are crushed by walls. But this evening, we are going to see how God has said no to this. We will see tonight that God has said no to the cruel, self-obsessed, self-serving, self-seeking ways of this world. And he has done something extraordinary at unspeakable cost to himself to create a people who are not building walls, not building walls to exclude, not, not making themselves the judge of others, but a people who are rich in diversity, rich in color, bursting at the seams with different voices, different shapes and sizes, but united a family established and reflecting the God who has made them. This God, this God full of life, a God who is rich in himself, full of delight and love, a father who delights in his son, a son who seeks to glorify his father. A spirit who loves to make much of the Father and the Son. This God, this triune God, says no to our walls and barriers. Because this is not what he made the world to be. So as we come to our passage tonight in Ephesians chapter 2, let us have in our minds that what God is doing in us, his people, his church, throughout the earth is nothing less than showing the world who he is. And the more we see this, the more we will want to be people who see more and more and more people added to our number. So let's try to unpack all of this as we turn back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 2 this evening. Let's begin by imagining the writer of this letter, Paul, Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle, who, who first encountered the people in Ephesus, the city to whom he was writing. Now, Paul, the Jew, the scholar, the one who had known the rigors of living as a Pharisee, one who had been obsessive in his observation of the commandments, including the first commandment not to make idols, not to make carved images to worship, 
This Paul now enters the marketplace of the city of Ephesus to which this letter is written. Ephesus was a vibrant city, famous throughout the world. It was proud of its temple, a temple to a goddess called Artemis. Its markets were full of magnificent, gleaming shrines and idols. And as Paul, the the apostle, was walking around this city, he would have noticed what this temple and this culture built around this temple had produced. It produced pride. The people of Ephesus were proud of the God of their city. We read in Acts chapter 19 that there was a baying mob. They were ready to kill the believers in Jesus, and they shouted out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were full of themselves. They saw Paul's message of Jesus not only as a threat to their livelihoods, their economy, but to their sense of their place in the world. How they loved to know how important they and their city was. How this led to their people being made ever richer by it. How they loved to know that as people came to the temple, they would be made richer, prouder. And here we find Paul wandering around with nothing more than a message but a message which will lead some of these Ephesians abandoning the worship of idols. A message which would lead them to destroy their idols. A message which would lead to rioting in the streets and near lynching of Christians. Unbelievable hostility. Now these Ephesian believers that he's writing to, they were seriously committed to the message which Paul the Jew had brought to them about a foreign savior who had lived, died, and been resurrected far away in a foreign land. They knew that this message would turn the world upside down. And Paul had been with them when it seemed like it had. It's to these people, these friends, that Paul writes. And we join this letter as he's seeking to encourage them with a reminder of their new identities as Christians. So for those of you who like headings for your notes, we find Paul's first point to be this. Remember who you were. He writes from verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but what a way to talk to your friends. Have you ever written a letter like this? Paul is speaking to these friends, these believers, in terms which I think should make us feel uncomfortable. What does he say of them? 
He says they were separated, excluded, foreigners, hopeless, godless. What a list. And many of us, if we think about it, might find ourselves uneasy with what Paul is saying of these Ephesians before they became Christians. After all, they were worshippers at the temple of the goddess Artemis, but she wasn't one of those obviously awful idols. There was no human sacrifice going on, no temple prostitution as far as we know. The temple would have provided cohesion, a focal point for the city community, maybe the occasional trip to make sacrifices. At the temple of the Artemis, only goats were sacrificed, but nothing like the bloodshed of the Jewish temple at Jerusalem. In fact, compared to that, it probably seemed quite civilized. It gave people something they needed. So how could Paul talk of these Ephesians as hopeless, godless? How dare he? Imagine if he'd written a letter like this to you explaining that as a result of where you were born, who your parents were, what your race or community was, meant that you were hopeless, godless. When we were working in Cambodia in our last few months, uh, working in, in the small church near the slum community of Stungmi and Jay, we met a lady called Yao. We first met her in the small broken down shack that she lived in, in the middle of the slums. And Yao was always in rags, always. She was often drunk when we met her. And her son, we discovered, was in prison miles away. She had no way of traveling to see him. She had no job. She could often be quite aggressive. She would shout, swear at you, if you were visiting other people. And near to, near to where um, Yao lived, near to the slum, was a temple. It was quite a well-known temple, actually, in Phnom Penh. It had a very famous uh, python, uh, as it happens, that uh, once uh, escaped from the, uh, the, the temple and escaped down the uh, sewage system. But anyway, um, the temple in Phnom Penh, was very famous, about a five-minute walk away from Yao's shack. And during the week, members of the temple community would come into the slums, and they would offer to chant for people uh, after, they were, after they were paid. And Yao would do this, like most of the other people in the community. She had a shrine in her shack. She made offerings. She made offerings at the temple. But nothing good came to her from that place. Why? Because the gods whom she sought were not gods at all. They were dead. Worse than that, they were devils. The kind of devils who would leave you as they found you. The kind who could whip up a mob like they did in Ephesus to violently seize and kill vulnerable people who would stop their worship and go a different way. 
So Yao was a person without hope. The temple and its ministers could offer no hope to her, either in this world or the next. And so as Paul writes these painfully hard words to his friends, remember that he has lived in Ephesus. He has seen the temple. He has seen the idolatry. He has seen the poor not helped by it, always giving out, buying gifts to improve their lives. He has seen the temple leaders comfortable being served by their community. But did that lead them to serve? Did that lead them to seek the well-being of those outside their community, outside their city? Well, we read later in, that, uh, in, in uh, the story of, of Paul in Ephesus, we read later in Acts that they couldn't even agree to allow a foreigner to join them in their condemnation of Paul. Such was their sense of self. Such was their sense of themselves and their own rightness. And this is what idolatry produces, pride and brokenness. So Paul writes that these Ephesians were once far off, godless, hopeless, but no more. This is what you were. Which brings us to our second point. Remember who you are. Paul writes in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Ephesians with their idols their temples, their pride in themselves and the city in which they lived, now brought near to a living God. A God who is not made of stone, immobile, there to be served, but brought near by a God with hands which had been pierced with nails onto a cross. A God who has brought them near with his own blood. And let us be struck by what Paul is saying of this. To these Gentile Ephesians, unable to come near to God, both because of their idolatry and because they were not members of God's people, Israel, to these people, Paul himself, the Jew, is now united by Christ. And so we find ourselves being ushered in by Paul to consider how these Ephesians, their new status as those in Christ, is part of an ancient unfolding plan of God to bring salvation to the world. As we hear Paul describing the Ephesians as those excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants, we hear how God has set apart one people, Israel, to be his own to receive his special promises, his special blessing, to be the people among whom he would live, the temple of Israel where he would be present. And we hear how Paul is reminding these Ephesians that this was once not theirs, that he, Paul, was different. He, a member of this community of Israel, and they not, separate. There was a plaque which hung on the stone wall which surrounded 
the consecrated area of the huge temple of Jerusalem. It was written in both Greek and Latin as a warning to all non-Jews who approached. And it said this, No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. The temple where the living God resided was off limits to Gentiles. A wall separated them from this place of reconciliation and peace. But now, Paul announces to these Ephesians in verse 14 that Christ Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the heart of the temple, which kept Israel away from God's holiness, that this curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now, Paul is telling these Gentiles, those walls of the temple which kept you out have been destroyed. It's no wonder that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Its purpose had come to an end. Now, The promises of blessing, which had come first to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, thousands of years before, that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise, all those years back, is finally fulfilled in his son Jesus. And let's see what the destruction of those walls means, what those blessings promised to Abraham are. Just as Paul had written in the strongest terms what these Gentile Ephesians once were, now he goes on to paint in the most vivid way who they have become. Where once they were separate from Christ, in verse 12, they are now brought near. Where once excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, now fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Where once without hope, without God in the world, now having access in one spirit to the Father. Remember Yao? In rags, in that slum, near to the temple, but broken and cut adrift in the world. The gods of the temple could not help her. But she didn't stay in those rags after Jesus met her. When the church in the slum, a community of Cambodians, Swiss, Vietnamese, British, American, when this church visited Yao, we prayed, we served her. We took her on the back of a motorbike miles to visit her son in prison. We kept visiting, even when she shouted at us, even when she was full of alcohol and embarrassment. We kept going because Jesus has destroyed the wall of hostility and preached peace to us. And Yao came inside. She came inside to the safety and security of that fellowship, that church of all sorts, all colors, all nations. No longer an outsider, no longer helpless, no longer in rags but now a daughter of the living God whom she came to call Father.
And for this, our final point, let us turn ourselves to why on earth God is interested in building something like this. What does all this tell us about God himself? The God who dwells in us. Now we started by thinking of all the walls, the barriers, the boundaries which we make. Those walls which are about wanting to keep ourselves separate, to keep ourselves pure, to keep out what is different to us and to protect and serve what we are. These are barriers which ultimately are about ourselves. And we all do it. Every family, every community, every nation does this. And of course, not all borders or barriers or walls are wrong. In a broken and fallen world, we need to establish protecting walls to preserve the weak, to protect sometimes vulnerable order. But walls are not what God is about. Yes, for a season, he established his covenant with one people. He called them to make a temple in which a wall would distinguish between them and the nations. But this was only ever a temporary affair, only ever to be in place until the right time came for his son to be born, only ever to be in place until the Messiah of Israel could be crucified by Gentile Romans and take upon himself the sins of the world. It was not a forever wall. Now I want to say that there is something magnificent, beautiful, when people from different nations praise their God together. During our years working in Cambodia, we had the privilege of working in a team of people from all over the world. Our first team leaders in, in Stengtreng were Japanese, Yuzo and Hitomi. Our last, Swiss, Toby and Esther. And when we went to visit the slum community, we often did so in pairs or groups of more than one nationality. It was not always simple. We misunderstood each other. Sometimes we had conflict because of our cultural, ethnic differences. But some of the most profound moments in my Christian life have been sharing bread and wine with people who are as different to me as I thought I could imagine. Khmer, illiterate, with life histories, which included the loss of family due to genocide and famine. Some who were once prostitutes, or whose daughters are prostitutes, or drug addicts, or Yao. But what God has done in the death of his son Jesus is to build a people from far and wide and unite them, make them into a family which is not all the same, but united. Doesn't look or sound the same, but a community so full of life in its diversity, in the multitudinousness of its peoples, at peace and in relationship because all saved by the same Lord. And what does this tell us about God? Well, just look at how Paul describes in verse 18 what salvation is and how God achieves it. Through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Notice how Paul speaks of each person of the Trinity here of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
we hear a description of the Son, the one who became a man, Jesus, whose work of bloody sacrifice makes possible a relationship with God. We hear of the one Spirit who unites us with the Father. This God is full of life in himself. This is such a profound truth because it's what distinguishes our gospel to any other message. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. Yet they are one God, united in love and purpose. So it's no wonder that this God is creating a community in which we are not all the same. We are not all alike. And yet we are one, united in love and purpose. Because that is who our God is. So when, when we see the church grow, as those from more and more nations and ethnicities are added to our number, we see a most profound truth reflected, that God is alive, and he is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why he's creating a multi-ethnic church around the, around the world, because a singular, monocultural community cannot manifest or show his glory. So we do well to remember that God's glory is made known louder and clearer when the ethnic and national diversity of the church increases. How empty does that cry of the Ephesians, those thousands of years back, seem? How empty it seems when they shouted about the glory of their idol and elevated her and the city of which she had power. How frail empty does that cry seem when compared to that which will be sounded by peoples from every continent, every nation, every tribe, every people, the cry which will be sung in every language, every tongue, from every people, that Jesus is Lord. That church community in Ephesus, the one in which Paul, the Jewish apostle, became united those former pagans, idol worshippers and sorcerers. They became part of that international community. And in our church family, the one in which we count amongst our numbers a range of nations, Chinese, English, Cambodian, Syrian, Indian, it's a glorious thing because it's the living community of a living God. And what does this mean for us? We, who, like the Ephesians, are no longer aliens and strangers, but have been brought into this fellowship with God. Well, if we are those who are no longer outsiders because Christ has torn down the wall of hostility, may we do everything in our power not to rebuild walls. Let us be active as a church in seeking ways in order to see more nations added to our number. Let us not allow ourselves to be content with the order and comfort we may find in being with our own people, our own kind. Can we be brave 
and take small steps to talk to those who speak differently. At the shops, in our workplace, at the school gate, in our school classes or halls of residence, in this city of Sheffield, the city of sanctuary, what a beautiful term, a city of sanctuary for countless nationalities from countless peoples, remember that Jesus came to preach to those far and near in our church planting, in our prayers, in our decisions to where, where to live and to work. Let's consider how much glory comes to God when the church is ever more international. And beyond this church and its community, how do we try to tear down walls? Are we looking to those peoples, those nations, which will enrich the holy temple of God even more? It's not easy. It's not without pain. It will be costly. But it will enrich us beyond measure. There were tears when the elders of the Ephesus church sent Paul the apostle on his way to share the gospel with other peoples. There will be tears for us as we pray, as we train, as we send off those from among us to join in this task. Maybe it will be you who counts the cost and goes. But as we do so, let's remember that this amazing church, full of life, teeming with nations, was one at the greatest of all costs. The very body and blood of our Savior. So as we close, let's remember and be marked out as those who are in the business, not of putting up walls to divide, but part of the plan to grow his temple, a temple of all the nations around the globe. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God of the nations. And we thank you, Father, that the, your desire to create a community, a people made up of all of the families, all of the nations, all of the, uh, the, the ethnic groups throughout the world did not stop you from giving your son. We thank you, Father, that you didn't spare his life in order to achieve that desire. And we thank you, Father, for the joy and the pleasure it is in worshiping, in sharing fellowship with people from nations, from people groups so different to our own as we worship the fact that Jesus is the Lord of all the nations. And so, Father, I want to pray for us as a church family here in Sheffield, in this city of sanctuary, that we as a church family will be a church of sanctuary for countless peoples from countless nationalities. And that you would call us, continue to inspire us to be people who see this happen both in our city, in our nation, and throughout the world.
And we give you thanks, Father, that you are showing something of your glory as this happens. And so, Father, we give thanks to you that you are a God of life. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.